This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies and the Centre for Poetry and Poetics at Durham University. It was recorded at a public reading in 2015 to celebrate 150 years since the birth of W.B. Yeats. Yeats is perhaps best loved for his lyric poems such as the Lake Isle of Inish Free, but through his literary career he wrote in a range of styles and subjects, reflecting his Irish nationalism, reinventing traditional genres, drawing inspiration from Irish myth and legend, and pushing into innovative symbolism. Professors Stephen Reagan and Michael O'Neill take us on a journey through the varied landscape of Yeats's verse. I'd like to begin with a very early poem, a poem written in 1888, and it's one of Yeats's best-known poems. It's a poem of exile. It's the Lake Isle of Inish Free. Yeats claimed that the inspiration came when he, he was in London. He was standing on Fleet Street, uh, feeling homesick for Ireland. But it was a, a poem that was mocked, uh, derided by some of Yeats's contemporaries. Ezra Pound wrote a parody of this, and uh, James Joyce wrote to Ezra Pound saying, This is a very poetical epistle. It should be read in the evening when the lake water is lapping. And I don't think poetical there is meant to be a, a compliment. A lot of people thought it was sentimental and facile. Yeats himself thought uh, it was the first poem he'd written uh, in which he'd managed to capture something of his own music. So he himself uh, held it in high esteem. The old Irish place name, Inish Free, is the island of Heather. And that explains why there's a reference to a purple glow in the poem. But obviously the anglicised name Inish Free uh, is evocative of freedom. I will arise and go now, and go to Inish Free, and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rolls will I have there, a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings. There midnight's all a glimmer, and noon a purple glow, and evening full of the linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, for always night and day I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore, while I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's grey, I hear it in the deep heart's core. Well, Yeats, as you probably know, was one of the principal organisers of the Irish literary revival. He spearheaded the Irish literary revival. And what it sought to revive, among other things, was an interest in stories, uh, songs and legends. Yeats uh, very memorably said he wanted to build up a national tradition of writing, an Irish national tradition that would be nonetheless Irish from being written in English. And of course that was a great challenge and there were other nationalists who thought that wasn't the way to go. But a, a national literature uh, in English. And I think we see him doing that uh, in the Lake Isle of Inish Free. And we see him doing it partly through the appeal of Irish myth in other poems like this one, 
the song of wandering Angus. Uh, Angus, in some ways, was the uh, Irish Apollo. Uh, so he was the god of youth, beauty, uh, and art. And in the cycle of tales, the medieval cycle of tales, uh, in which he appears, he falls ill um, after falling in love with a woman that he sees in his dreams. So this was written in 1897, and it appeared in the book The Wind Among the Reeds uh, in 1899. And I think looking back, we can see that that book, The Wind Among the Reeds, was a great symbolist work, uh, among other things. The Song of Wandering Angus. I went out to the hazel wood, because a fire was in my head, and cut and peeled a hazel wand, and hooked a berry to a thread. And when white moths were on the wing, and moth-like stars were flickering out, I dropped the berry in a stream, and caught a little silver trout. When I had laid it on the floor, I went to blow the fire aflame, but something rustled on the floor, and someone called me by my name. It had become a glimmering girl, with apple blossoms in her hair, who called me by my name and ran and faded through the brightening air. Though I am old with wandering, through hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find out where she has gone, and kiss her lips, and take her hands, and walk among long dappled grass, and pluck till time and times are done, the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. Well, Yeats is one of the great poets of old age and ageing, and I'm sure we're going to hear uh, poems of that kind, poems like uh, Among Schoolchildren. But he also wrote some very tender, uh, perceptive poems about childhood and youth, poems like A Prayer for My Daughter, uh, one of the great poems of his uh, middle phase. The poem I'll read now, To a Child Dancing in the Wind, uh, j just happens to be a, a personal favourite. It's a very delicate lyric, very short lyric, addressed to Isolt Gone. This was the daughter of his beloved Maud Gone. And of course, Yeats had edited the poems of William Blake uh, in the 1890s. And I like to think of, of this as a, a song of, of innocence. It's, it's reminiscent of Blake uh, in some ways. The child doesn't yet hear anything uh, of suffering in the wind. Dance there upon the shore. What need have you to care for wind or water's roar? And tumble out your hair that the salt drops have wet. Being young, you have not known the fool's triumph, nor yet love lost as soon as won, nor the best labourer dead, and all the sheaves to bind. What need have you to dread the monstrous crying of the wind? So just a very uh, short lyric. Yeats spent a lot of time at a place called Cool Park in Galway. This was the home of his friend, uh, his patron, his collaborator, Lady Augusta Gregory. And after the Easter Rising in 
1916 in particular, Cool Park uh, became something of a refuge, a uh, sanctuary for Yeats. It's a, it's a poem partly about needing that kind of refuge, but it's about enduring change. And it echoes a very important line uh, in Easter 1916, which some of you will remember. All's changed. There's a, a look back uh, at Easter 1916 uh, in that line. And in counting the swans, the poem is counting the passing minutes uh, and seconds before the final hour. But again, it's a, a symbolist poem. And like all great symbolist poems, it never relinquishes its mystery. And it's worth remembering what Yeats said, that poetry moves us because of its symbolism. And I think this is a poem that beautifully exemplifies that idea. Poetry moves us because of its symbolism. The trees are in their autumn beauty. The woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky. Upon the brimming water, among the stones, are nine and fifty swans. The nineteenth autumn has come upon me since I first made my count. I saw, before I had well finished, all suddenly mount and scatter wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. I have looked upon those brilliant creatures, and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight the first time on this shore, the bell-beat of their wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams, or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old. Passion or conquest, wander where they will, attend upon them still. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. Among what rushes will they build? By what lakes, edge or pool? Delight men's eyes when I awake some day to find they have flown away. And just to finish this first set, a poem titled The Fisherman. And I don't need to say very much about it, except that The Fisherman is Yeats's uh, ideal uh, audience, his uh, dreamed-for audience. He wrote it in 1914, and this is a time when he's very disillusioned with the Philistine uh, middle class, initially thinking that he could win over uh, a big audience, win over the commercial middle class to poetry and art. And he thinks maybe that effort has been in vain. The Fisherman. Although I can see him still, the freckled man who goes to a grey place on a hill in grey Connemara clothes at dawn to cast his flies. It's long since I began to call up to the eyes this wise and simple man. All day I'd looked in the face what I had hoped twould be to write for my own race and the reality. The living men that I hate, the dead man that I loved, the craven man 
in his seat, the insolent, unreproved, and no knave brought to book, who has won a drunken cheer, the witty man and his joke aimed at the commonest ear, the clever man who cries the catch-cries of the clown, the beating down of the wise, and great art beaten down. Maybe a twelve-month since, suddenly I began in scorn of this audience, imagining a man and his sun-freckled face and grey Connemara cloth, climbing up to a place where stone is dark and a froth, and the downturn of his wrist when the flies drop in the stream, a man who does not exist, a man who is but a dream, and cried, before I am old, I shall have written him one poem, maybe as cold and passionate as the dawn. I'll start with uh, a poem called When You Are Old. It's a, it's a version of a very bitter sonnet by the French poet Ronsard, and Yeats makes of it something rather tenderer, gentler. And one technical thing that's always fascinated me about this poem is the way that one stanza uses the same verb in each line. It's always thought that's quite difficult to get away with. There's a, there's a kind of intensity, as there so often is in Yeats, accompanied, as it were, in, in counterpoint by something flowing and, and very gracious. When you are old and grey and full of sleep, and nodding by the fire, take down this book and slowly read and dream of the soft look your eyes had once and of their shadows deep. How many loved your moments of glad grace and loved your beauty with love false or true. But one man loved the pilgrim soul in you and loved the sorrows of your changing face. And bending down beside the glowing bars, murmur a little sadly how love fled and paced upon the mountains overhead and hid his face amid a crowd of stars. Of course, the word there that he repeats in that second stanza four times, the word loved, and he is a superb love poet. And I want to read one of his most famous love poems, He Wishes for the Cloths of Heaven. Now, this comes from this highly symbolist volume, The Wind Among the Reeds. It's a poem, as so many of Yeats's poems are, of this period about desire and, and longing and the sense of, of lack on the poet's part, but perhaps there's something that he, he has, some gift that he has to give. Technically, it's extraordinary, and it both it, it, it's rhythms that, that are extraordinarily lilting and at the same time quite hesitant, and in its use of repeated words instead of rhyme, it uses repeated words, as you'll see. Had I the heavens embroidered cloths, enwrought with golden and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths of night and light and the half-light, I would spread the cloths under your feet. But I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly because you tread on my dreams.
This, this next poem shows a, a, a difference. We're moving from that more incantatory, symbolist style to something conversational. This is Adam's Curse, a poem about poetry and about love, with a very elusive uh, ending. And again, it's a, 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 it's a poem written in, in couplets. Again, it seems to, to focus on the figure of Maud Gone. Adam's Curse, when of course Adam's Curse that he must... He must earn his uh, bread by the sweat of his brow. And this, this idea comes into Yeats a lot, the idea of the necessary labour involved in any achievement. And yet, for something to be achieved, there needs to be this other quality he calls sprezzatura, a kind of almost an aristocratic contempt for labour, uh, a sort of nonchalance. We sat together at one summer's end, that beautiful, mild woman, your close friend, and you and I, and talked of poetry. I said, a line will take us hours, maybe. Yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been naught. Better go down upon your marrow bones and scrub a kitchen pavement, or break stones like an old pauper in all kinds of weather. For to articulate sweet sounds together is to work harder than all these, and yet be thought an idler by the noisy set of bankers, schoolmasters, and clergymen the martyrs call the world. And thereupon, that beautiful, mild woman for whose sake there's many a one shall find out all heartache on finding that her voice is sweet and low, replied, to be born woman is to know, although they do not talk of it at school, that we must labour to be beautiful. I said, it's certain there is no fine thing since Adam's fall, but needs much labouring. There have been lovers who thought love should be so much compounded of high courtesy that they would sigh and quote with learned looks, precedents out of beautiful old books. Yet now it seems an idle trade enough. We sat grown quiet at the name of love. We saw the last embers of daylight die, and in the trembling blue-green of the sky, a moon worn as if it had been a shell, washed by time's waters as they rose and fell, about the stars and broke in days and years. I had a thought for no one's but your ears, that you were beautiful and that I strove to love you in the old high way of love, that it had all seemed happy and yet we'd grown as weary hearted as that hollow moon. This uh, one is a, will always be one of my favourite Yeats poems called uh, The Cold Heaven. And it's one of these moments of where Yeats moves quite magnificently, I think, between the, the ordinary into a kind of visionary intensity. He's using a very long line in this poem, the Alexandrine 12 syllable lines, but the rhythms and the enjambments and the phrasing uh, has a kind of... Uh, energy that presses on until finally he has a, a, a kind of sense of what life might be like after death. But the poem has so many of Yeats' poems. The poem ends with the question, Yeats is fascinated by the question. 
here he's taking himself into regions of occult speculation, perhaps. And yet the poem isn't so esoteric that it doesn't feel like a meditation anyone could understand or about guilt, about the sense of torturing yourself, perhaps, as he puts it, out of all sense and reason. It starts with that word that you're told you should never use at the start of poems. I always like to see that in, in great poems, the word suddenly. The cold heaven. Suddenly I saw the cold and rook-delighting heaven that seemed as though ice burned and was but the more ice. And thereupon imagination and heart were driven so wild that every casual thought of that and this vanished and left but memories that should be out of season with the hot blood of youth, of love crossed long ago. And I took all the blame out of all sense and reason, until I cried and trembled and rocked to and fro, riddled with light. Ah, when the ghost begins to quicken, confusion of the deathbed over, is it sent out naked on the roads, as the books say, and stricken by the injustice of the skies for punishment. And I'll finish this set with uh, Easter 1916. Uh, it's an extraordinarily skillful poem. I'll, uh, I'll just read a bit. One thing I, just one detail picking out from that last poem is to, to look out for the questions in the final section of the poem and, and how, as the poem's rhetoric mounts in intensity and passion, also, the questions, the questioning perhaps even of the worth or the value of the rising also seem to intensify. One critic, uh, Richard Ellman, in contrast to Keats's negative capability, speaks of Yeats's affirmative capability, the ability to sort of affirm in, in, in the teeth of his own doubts and certainties. Easter 1916. I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among grey, 18th-century houses. I have passed with a nod of the head, or polite, meaningless words, or have lingered a while and said, polite, meaningless words, and thought before I had done of a mocking tale or a jibe to please a companion around the fire at the club, being certain that they and I but lived where motley is worn, all changed, changed utterly, a terrible beauty is born. That woman's days were spent in ignorant goodwill, her nights in argument until her voice grew shrill. What voice more sweet than hers when young and beautiful she rode to Harriers. This man had kept a school and rode our winged horse. This other, his helper and friend, was coming into his force. He might have won fame in the end. So sensitive his nature seemed, so daring and sweet his thought. This other man I had dreamed, a drunken, vainglorious lout, he had done most bitter wrong to some who are near my heart, yet I number him in the song. He too has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He too has been changed in his turn, transformed utterly. 
a terrible beauty is born. Hearts with one purpose alone, through summer and winter seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. The horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to tumbling cloud, minute by minute they change. A shadow of cloud on the stream changes minute by minute. A horse hoof slides on the brim and a horse plashes within it. The long-legged moorhens dive and hens to moorcocks call. Minute by minute they live, the stones in the midst of all. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. A when may it suffice, that is heaven's part, our part to murmur name upon name, as a mother names her child, when sleep at last has come on, lip, on limbs that had run wild. What is it but nightfall? No, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream, enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse, McDonough and McBride, and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. Well, that woman, um, as she's referred to in uh, Easter 1916, was Constance Markievicz. Uh, Yates had known her as Constance Gore Booth, and she features in an elegy along with her sister. One of, one of the few um, double elegies that I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, and I think Mike, Michael might be reading that later. Um, she'd married a Polish count, which is where the name Markievicz uh, came from. She was a very fine uh, horsewoman, uh, Yates acknowledges that, but also a, a crack shot with a rifle and uh, taught many uh, young Republicans in uh, Easter 1916 how to handle a gun. She, she was sentenced to death. She was in Kilmainham jail for a while with the others sentenced to death, Patrick Pierce, uh, Conley, uh, but her sentence was commuted and uh, she received a prison sentence instead. And this, uh, this is a poem to a political prisoner and um, I'm struck by the bird imagery in Yeats. Very odd that um, in some ways she is both the bird uh, but she is visited uh, by this bird, a gull, um, in her prison cell. She that but little patience knew from childhood on had now so much a grey gull lost its fear and flew down to her cell and there alit and there endured her fingers touch and from her fingers ate its bit. Did she in touching that lone wing recall the years before her mind became a bitter and abstract thing, 
have thought some popular enmity, blind and leader of the blind, drinking the foul ditch where they lie. When long ago I saw her ride under Ben Bulban to the meet, the beauty of her countryside, with all youth's lonely wildness stirred, she seemed to have grown clean and sweet, like any rock-bred sea-born bird, sea-born, or balanced on the air, when first it sprang out of the nest upon some lofty rock to stare upon the cloudy canopy, while under its storm-beaten breast cried out the hollows of the sea. Sailing to Byzantium, which is the opening poem of Yeats's great modernist volume, uh, The Tower, published in 1928. It's the opening poem, um, as I say, of that uh, volume. I think it's also uh, the first poem that he wrote in a Tava rima, uh, a form uh, he carried on uh, using to the end of his career. And having initially uh, longed for a return to Ireland in that opening uh, poem we heard, The Lake Isle of Inish Free, uh, now uh, it seems he can't wait to leave Ireland, uh, not just to leave Ireland, but to leave nature altogether and be consumed into a, a world of art in the great city of Byzantium. And what he dreams of doing is taking the form of a golden bird. But ironically, what this bird will sing of uh, is not eternity, but things passing, the passing of time. So sailing to Byzantium. That is no country for old men, the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song. The salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh or fowl, commend all summer long, whatever is begotten, born and dies. Caught in that sensual music, all neglect monuments of unaging intellect. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. Nor is there singing school, but studying monuments of its own magnificence. And therefore I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium. O oh, sages, standing in God's holy fire, as in the gold mosaic of a wall, come from the holy fire, pern in a gyre, and be the singing masters of my soul. Consume my heart away, sick with desire, and fastened to a dying animal, it knows not what it is, and gather me into the artifice of eternity. Once out of nature, I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing, but such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make, of hammered gold and gold enamelling, to keep a drowsy emperor awake, or set upon a golden bough to sing to lords and ladies of Byzantium of what is past or passing or to come. Yeats is one of the great elegists in 
modern poetry. And that elegiac tendency extends to objects, to buildings, houses, uh, places, uh, as well as to people. And long before the house at Cool Park, where he'd been visiting Lady Gregory, fell into disuse and it was eventually uh, demolished, Yeats fears that it might uh, just uh, end in ruins. And he writes about this um, more than once. But this poem, Cool Park 1929, is also a great tribute uh, to his patron, Lady Gregory, great uh, benefactor uh, and inspiration. Oddly, she was still living at the time uh, he wrote this. She died in 1932. So Cool Park 1929 is what we might call a, a proleptic uh, elegy, sort of anticipatory elegy. I meditate upon a swallow's flight upon an aged woman and her house, a sycamore and lime tree lost in night, although that western cloud is luminous, great works constructed there in nature's spite for scholars and for poets after us, thoughts long knitted into a single thought, a dance-like glory that those walls begot. There, Hide before he had beaten into prose that noble blade the muses buckled on. There, one that ruffled in a manly pose for all his timid heart. There, that slow man, that meditative man, John Singh. And those impetuous men, Shaw Taylor and Hugh Lane, found pride established in humility, a scene well set and excellent company. They came like swallows, and like swallows went. And yet a woman's powerful character could keep a swallow to its first intent. And half a dozen in formation there that seemed to whirl upon a compass point found certainty upon the dreaming air. The intellectual sweetness of those lines that cut through time or cross it wither shins. Here, traveller, scholar, poet, take your stand. When all those rooms and passages are gone, when nettles wave upon a shapeless mound and saplings root among the broken stone and dedicate eyes bent upon the ground, back turned upon the brightness of the sun and all the sensuality of the shade, a moment's memory to that laurelled head. Lady Gregory died in 1932 and shortly after her death, Yeats and his wife Georgie decided that it was time to return to Dublin and they moved from uh, the tower uh, where they'd been uh, living to uh, a small house uh, in the city in Dublin. And that old house uh, now becomes uh, a strange place of inspiration, a different kind of uh, setting for the poems. And uh, Yeats, now considering his own declining years, begins to ask for uh, inspiration to continue, to be remade, uh, refashioned, uh, as it were, in his poems. And this becomes a very important theme in the very uh, last poems of Yeats. But this is an acre of grass, 
Uh, I like to think it's, uh, it's Yeats grazing. Implications of that kind seem to be there with the, um, the, the acre of grass, kind of Yeats uh, wintering out maybe, an acre of grass. Picture and book remain, an acre of green grass for air and exercise. Now strength of body goes, midnight, an old house where nothing stirs but a mouse. My temptation is quiet. Here at life's end, neither loose imagination nor the mill of the mind consuming its rag and bone can make the truth known. Grant me an old man's frenzy, myself must I remake till I am Timon and Lear, or that William Blake who beat upon the wall till truth obeyed his call. A mind Michelangelo knew that can pierce the clouds, or inspired by frenzy, shake the dead in their shrouds. Forgotten elves by mankind, an old man's eagle mind. And then just to close, very beautiful poem titled Beautiful Lofty Things. Poem written um, just a year before he died. Right towards the end of um, his life, it's almost as if he begins to curate um, his, his own memories. And I'm, I'm thinking of poems like the um, Municipal Gallery Revisited, which is too long to, to read. But he's, he's putting his own images on, on show more and more for him to inspect them, and I think for um, other people to inspect them as, as well. And this is a strange poem because those beautiful lofty things which are his treasured memories and they're part of the life he shared with other uh, people are like vignettes there's something very uh, visual uh, about them and the way he puts them on show and they include his father um, he, he has some stirring memories of his father a very bold man who had stood up in the abbey theater when the riots um, around sings playboy of the western world uh, were taking place and started provoking people in this already very, very uh, tense atmosphere. And then he has John O'Leary, great Irish nationalist, Romantic Islands, dead and gone. It's with O'Leary uh, in the grave, he tells us, uh, in September 1913. He has Standish O'Grady, an Irish historian, barely being able to stand up. There are lots of jokes about drink. I think, you know, Standish can't stand uh, there's also a reference to a land of plaster saints, and I suspect plastered uh, was, a, was a word uh, much in currency, but it, it sounds as if Standish O'Grady can't stand up. And then Augusta Gregory, one, one of his treasured memories of Augusta Gregory, uh, after a thread had been made on, on her life, uh, telling the assassin at what time she would be sitting by her window and uh, what time the light would beyond. But it closes uh, most memorably with Maud Gone, uh, a very ordinary moment where Maud Gone is waiting for a train and then magnificently uh, he transforms her into a Greek goddess. And as far as I know it's the only uh, poem in which Maud Gone uh, is mentioned by name. Beautiful lofty things. Beautiful lofty things. O'Leary's noble head my father upon the abbey stage, before him a raging crowd, this land of saints. Then, as the applause died out, 
of plaster saints, his beautiful, mischievous head thrown back, Standish O'Grady supporting himself between the tables, speaking to a drunken audience high, nonsensical words. Augusta Gregory, seated at her great Ormolu table, her 80th winter approaching. Yesterday, he threatened my life. I told him that nightly, from six to seven, I sat at this table, the blinds drawn up. Maud gone, at Hoth Station, waiting a train. Pallas Athena, in that straight back and arrogant head. All the Olympians, a thing never known again. I'll read a few later poems, and I'll start with Among School Children. Uh, this is a um, poem Yeats wrote when he was a, a senator in the New Irish Senate, since he visited a school. And uh, the sight of uh, children in the room takes him back to thinking of his own childhood, and he thinks of Maud Gon's childhood, and then he thinks of Maud Gon as she currently is, and then he thinks of the whole process of growing old and change. And then he thinks the way philosophers have tried to deal with this problem of change and being, and they've Plato coming up with the notion of something changeless and eternal, for example. And then he thinks about how we long, because things perish all the time, we long for something that will last. And one of the places that leads us to religious worship, it leads us to hope for the future through children perhaps but it also leads to and it leads this poet back to symbols the symbols that he's always in a way been haunted by uh, not always trusting I think I think a lot of Yeats is a kind of debate about the reliability of symbols but he finishes again with a question and again with a trying to conjure up in this poem something that will seem to to, to elude all this perishing and change among school children. I walk through the long schoolroom questioning. A kind old nun in a white hood replies. The children learn to cipher and to sing, to study reading books and history, to cut and sew, be neat in everything in the best modern way. The children's eyes in momentary wonder stare upon a 60-year-old smiling public man. I dream of a Lydian body bent above a sinking fire, a tale that she told of a harsh reproof or trivial event that changed some childish day to tragedy, told. And it seemed that our two natures blent into a sphere from youthful sympathy, or else to alter Plato's parable into the yoke and white of the one shell. And thinking of that fit of grief or rage, I look upon one child or t'other there, and wonder if she stood so at that age. For even daughters of the swan can share something of every paddler's heritage, and had that colour upon cheek or hair, and thereupon my heart is driven wild. She stands before me as a living child. Her present image floats into the mind. Did 
quattrocento finger fashion it hollow of cheek, as though it drank the wind and took a mess of shadows for its meat. And I, though never of Lydian kind, had pretty plumage once, enough of that, better to smile on all that smile, and show there is a comfortable kind of old scarecrow. What youthful mother, a shape upon her lap, honey of generation had betrayed, and that must sleep, shriek, struggle to escape, as recollection or the drug decide, would think her son, did she but see that shape with sixty or more winters on its head, a compensation for the pang of his birth, or the uncertainty of his setting forth. Plato thought nature but a spume that plays upon a ghostly paradigm of things. Solider Aristotle played the tours upon the bottom of a king of kings. World-famous, golden-thighed Pythagoras fingered upon a fiddlestick or strings what a star sang and careless muses heard, old clothes upon old sticks to scare a bird. Both nuns and mothers worship images, but those the candles light are not as those that animate a mother's reveries, but keep a marble or a bronze repose, and yet they too break hearts. O oh, presences that passion, piety, or affection knows, and that all heavenly glories symbolize, O oh, self-born mockers of man's enterprise. Labor is blossoming or dancing where the body is not bruised to pleasure soul, nor beauty born out of its own despair, nor blear-eyed wisdom out of midnight oil. O chestnut tree, great-rooted blossomer, are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? O body swayed to music, O brightening glance, how can we know the dancer from the dance? Stephen was mentioning the elegy, the double elegy for uh, Eva Gorbuth and Con Markovitz. Now I'll read that now. This is the first poem in The Winding Stair, the volume that follows on from The Tower. This is written actually in the In Memoriam stanza, Tennyson's In Memoriam stanza, but you'd hardly guess it because it keeps flowing over the boundaries between the, you know, the ABBA quatrain structure. One thing I always find about this poem that I find intensely affecting is, though I know the two people are dead, that it is an elegy, it tells you that in the title, I always forget it when I've got to the, it's divided into two paragraphs. So by the time I'm at the end of the first paragraph, I've sort of forgotten it until there's this very touching turn in the poem as he addresses the, the two women. The light of evening, Lissadell. Great windows open to the south. Two girls in silk kimonos, both beautiful, one a gazelle. But a raving autumn shears blossom from the summer's wreath. The older is condemned to death, pardoned 
drags out lonely years, conspiring among the ignorant. I know not what the younger dreams, some vague utopia, and she seems when withered old and skeleton gaunt, an image of such politics. Many a time, I think, to seek one or the other out and speak of that old Georgian mansion, mix pictures of the mind, recall that table and the talk of youth, two girls in silk kimonos, both beautiful, one a gazelle. Dear shadows, now you know it all, all the folly of a fight with a common wrong or right. The innocent and the beautiful have no enemy but time. Arise and bid me strike a match and strike another till time catch. Should the conflagration climb, run till all the sages know we the great gazebo built, they convicted us of guilt. Bid me strike a match and blow. Extraordinary end. He seems to imagine himself and the two sisters as what one critics call spectral metaphorical arsonists, sort of destroying this whole gazebo. The, the, the sense of guilt, I think, is very, very strong in you. I think he's a great poet of guilt, and uh, there's, a, there's been some fine work on, on, on an important word, word in his work, uh, the word remorse. I'm not sure that's quite the same thing as guilt, though there's, there I think there's maybe in that poem there's a repudiation of guilt. But the, the sense of the sense throughout the winding stair of wanting to bring things to an end is quite extraordinary, though it just teeters on the very edge, you might say, at the end of that poem. The next poem is called A Dialogue of Self and Soul. I'll, I'll, I, w I won't read you the first. Time is winging on, and I hope people standing up are not too uncomfortable, but um, I, I'll just read you the second part. This is a sort of Marvel-like poem, you know, like the uh, Dialogue of the Soul and Body. Uh, and, and the two the two protagonists, so to speak, or as it were, two sides of Yeats, the, the soul is the, the side that's longing for some kind of almost mystical transcendence to reach a place, as it puts it, he puts it, where thought is done, that is carried out, but also finished, where self is still, as it were, the unregenerate, conflicted person of flesh and blood uh, speaking of love and war. And the soul reaches a point where it says, when it thinks of ascending to heaven, but when I think of that, my tongue's a stone. And it drops out of the poem. You might say it's leaving the field to self. And you might say that the self, therefore, wins the battle. But I don't think that's quite how it is at all, because the second half is one of the most conflicted pieces of writing in Yeats, where he... There's a sort of esoteric side of so often in Yeats, he seems to be imagining living his life again, almost as though he's imagining a kind of reincarnation of himself as himself, going through it all again. And he reaches a point at which he can come to terms with his life, uh, with the whole process, and in fact reaches a point of almost ec ecstatic assertion. There's a wonderful phrase which I just scribbled down on my list of poems I was going to read by Louis McNeese in his uh, great great book, The Poetry of W.B. Yeats, where he says there is nearly always in, in Yeats a leaping vitality, the vitality of Cleopatra waiting for the asp, and there's something of that, the sort of sense of darkness and tragic death just around the corner. 
So this is the second half of Dialogue of Self and Soul. A living man is blind and drinks his drop. What matter if the ditches are impure? What matter if I live it all once more? Endure that toil of growing up, the ignominy of boyhood, the distress of boyhood changing into man, the unfinished man and his pain brought face to face with his own clumsiness, the finished man among his enemies. How in the name of heaven can he escape that defiling and disfigured shape the mirror of malicious eyes casts upon his eyes until at last he thinks that shape must be his shape. And what's the good of an escape if honour find him in the wintry blast? I am content to live it all again and yet again if it be life to pitch into the frog spawn of a blind man's ditch, a blind man battering blind men, or into that most fecund ditch of all, the folly that man does or must suffer if he woos a proud woman, not kindred of his soul. I am content to follow to its source every event in action or in thought, measure the lot, forgive myself the lot. When such as I cast out remorse, so great a sweetness flows into the breast, we must laugh and we must sing, we are blessed by everything, everything we look upon is blessed. Extraordinary change of tone in that poem, I think, at the end. Now, just read a, a couple more. Here's a poem called Byzantium, which I don't think anyone understands. Well, I'm sure everybody does understand it, but I've, I've always felt there's a sort of, there's a kind of excess of music that makes, even that you can, you can extract a paraphrasable meaning, but it isn't the poem. There's an astonishingly interwoven set of particular words. It's something that Yeats loves to do, to pick, pick a word and work it. It's something you find in Shelley and in, and in Swinburne in particular, but, but Yeats makes of it something very much his own. To take a word, and by the end of the poem, the word is uh, its an actor in the poem's drama, as one can see in this poem. This, of course, is the sequel to Sailing to Byzantium. And I, I think Yeats felt, uh, after correspondence with a friend, that he'd left some things uncertain and he wanted to go a little further exploring and exploring the, the world of Byzantium. The other thing I want to say about it is, as you can see in that previous poem, one of the things that drives the some of the greatest poems of Yeats is this going back to his almost too famous statement out of the quarrel with others we make rhetoric but of the quarrel with ourselves we make poetry it's a, he's a poet of self he generates these quarrels this seems to be a poem that's on the side of the artifice of eternities he calls it saved Byzantium until when he's in Byzantium suddenly all the material that the, the, the Golden smithies of the emperor turn into works of art. All the kind of flood of, of, of life's energies seem to almost take the poem over. The unpurged images of day recede. 
the emperor's drunken soldiery are abed. Night resonance recedes, night walker's psalm after great cathedral gone. A starlit or a moonlit dome disdains all that man is, all mere complexities, the fury and the mire of human veins. Before me floats an image, man or shade, shade more than man, more image than a shade. For Hades' bobbin bound in mummy cloth may unwind the winding path. A mouth that has no moisture and no breath, breathless mouths may summon. I hail a superhuman. I call it death in life and life in death. Miracle, bird or golden handiwork, more miracle than bird or handiwork, Planted on the starlit golden bough, can like the cocks of Hades crow, or by the moon embittered, scorn aloud, in glory of changeless metal, common bird or petal, and all complexities of mire or blood. At midnight on the emperor's pavement flit, flames that no faggot feeds, nor steel has lit, nor storm disturbs, flames begotten of flame, where blood begotten spirits come, and all complexities of fury leave, dying into a dance, an agony of trance, an agony of flame that cannot singe a sleeve. A straddle on the dolphin's mire and blood, spirit after spirit. The smithies break the flood, the golden smithies of the emperor. Marbles of the dancing floor break bitter furies of complexity, those images that yet fresh images beget, that dolphin torn, that gong-tormented sea. I'll finish with what we were saying before, Stephen and I, was um, a curtain, the opposite of a curtain raiser. So this is the circus animal's desertion. This is one of his last ever poems and it's a sort of he's trying to think of a subject for a poem he's saying I, I all the things I've written about they're all nothing is nothing is helping me out in in this predicament he now sees as himself as a circus a ringmaster of a circus and all the myths and all the subjects and the symbols they seem so many um, circus animals that used to dance attendance but now they're they're no good and he says all I can do in the second section it's written in a tarbarima it's in the second section, three, three stanzas, in one of them he talks about an early narrative poem, The Wanderings of Ushin. He says, what can I but enumerate old themes? I could just talk about my old topics. And when he gets, what he's, then he talks about two plays, The Countess Kathleen and On Bailey's Strand. And when he's talking about his, this long poem and the plays, he's talking about the intricate relationship between the poet as a, a poet and the poet as a human being. He's saying of one work, that the actual fiction didn't matter that much, the wandering Zushin, it's the biographical drive that's really important, at least that's how I crudely paraphrase it. But of the plays, he says, uh, they, they represent a counter-truth, the way in which somebody might think they're writing something because they're expressing something personal, but they get caught up in the work of art so much. It, how does he put it now? This dream itself had all my thoughts, yeah, soon enough, this dream itself had all my thought and love. And then he finishes by saying, 
he has to start again. I've always found it extraordinarily exhilarating that at the very end of Yeats's career, he should finish one of his greatest last poems with a couplet that has a rhyme with the word start in it. And you could say one of the things maybe that he's starting is what we might call confessional poetry. You could say that. The circus animal's desertion. I sought a theme and sought for it in vain. I sought it daily for six weeks or so. Maybe at last, being but a broken man, I must be satisfied with my heart. Although winter and summer till old age began, my circus animals were all on show. Those stilted boys, that burnished chariot, lion and woman, and the Lord knows what. What can I but enumerate old themes? First, that sea rider Usheen led by the nose through three enchanted islands, allegorical dreams, vain gaiety, vain battle, vain repose. Themes of the embittered heart, or so it seems, that might adorn old songs or courtly shows. But what cared I that set him on to ride? I starve for the bosom of his fairy bride. And then a counter-truth filled out its play. The Countess Kathleen was the name I gave it. She, pity-crazed, had given her soul away, but masterful heaven had intervened to save it. I thought, my dear, must her own soul destroy, so did fanaticism and hate enslave it. And this brought forth a dream, and soon enough, this dream itself had all my thought and love. And when the fool and blind man stole the bread, Cahoolan fought the ungovernable sea. Heart mysteries there, and yet when all is said, it was the dream itself enchanted me, character isolated by a deed, to engross the present and dominate memory. Players and painted stage took all my love and not those things that they were emblems of. Those masterful images, because complete, grew in pure mind, but out of what began? A mound of refuse or the sweepings of a street, old kettles, old bottles and a broken can, old iron, old bones, old rags, that raving slut who keeps the till. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start, in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. Thanks very much. And thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com. 